welcome to the Thought Echoes podcast, where we have an opportunity to listen in as people reflect on their relationship with their thoughts and their creative work and how it's changed since their brain injury. My name is Beth Bonnes, host of the Thought Echoes podcast. Thanks for joining. I hope you enjoyed this month's interview. Hi, my name is Allison Bond Shapiro. I'm a stroke survivor. 21 years ago at the beginning of this month in May, I had two brainstem strokes 24 hours apart. And after the second one, I was profoundly injured. I couldn't walk. My left side was paralyzed, couldn't move my left arm or hand or my leg. The fingers of my left hand were shut. And if I tried to open them or somebody pushed them open, they'd snap shut again. Mm. My right side was what's called the taxic, which means it was uncoordinated. So I was bilaterally affected. My trunk muscles were affected. It was pretty hard to sit up. They would strap me into the wheelchair. That meant the breathing was affected too. It was hard to take a deep breath. I couldn't focus my eyes. I'd look at the clock across the room and the numbers would swim in, out, in and out. It wasn't really double vision. It was that I couldn't stay focused. Mm. I couldn't swallow. I had a feeding tube up my nose and down my throat. My speech was really heavily slurred. It's very hard to understand me. I couldn't control my emotional expression. I'd laugh and cry in almost any provocation sometimes both at once, which since my diaphragm was compromised, made breathing pretty hard. I couldn't control my bladder and my bowels. And that was followed a few days later by not being able to urinate on my own and being catheterized every six hours. I don't know if you know much about brainstem strokes, but they are highly lethal. 50% of people who have one brainstem stroke die. I had two. 24 hours apart. What does that make my chances to be alive at this point? Not that great. But here I am. And I have had an amazing journey. One of the things to know is partway through my recovery, actually a year and a half into it, my now late husband's dementia got worse. And I was his caregiver as I was recovering from my stroke. I was his caregiver 24-7 for two years until he died. And I did it, and I got through it, and I'm here. And I've had an incredibly beautiful and resourceful life in the last 21 years, and I'm very grateful for it. Allison, I don't even know where to start. I mean, as you talk about the 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 likelihood of you surviving one is small, then the second, and then having your husband to caregive him, caregiver for him while you're doing it, I cannot imagine the stress and the pressure on you. And yet you in talking to you, if I just met you at a cocktail party, I'd have no idea. I'd have no idea that you'd gone through that level of trauma and survived and came out on the other side thriving like you are. I gotta take a breath. <laughs> um, when, in my talking with people on these uh, podcasts, I'm blown away with the 
journeys that everybody and how unique they are. And, uh, you know, you have a little bit of a bad day and then you kind of remember just a glimpse of some of the stories that you guys have said. And it's just like, buck up. I mean, the amount of pain and trauma people have had to go through and to come out the other side where you look at it as a rich life with that is just um, an inspiration. Uh, it's just, I, I know that may feel like that's overused, but it really is. Can you, my focus has been in talking with people is trying to look from a creative side and especially with people who have, were on creative endeavors before the stroke um, to talk through how the essence of who they are, that pre-stroke or pre-traumatic event person was and kind of peeling back, if you can put back the time machine and go back to what that glimpse was before, now looking at it in your rear view mirror of how that essence of you kind of stayed, how you were engaged with that through your thought process, because that's usually the way we engage with what's inside of us is how we think about ourselves and frame that. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. At the time that I had the strokes, I was living my lifelong dream. And my lifelong dream was to illustrate a children's book. So I was working very hard because I'd never done one before and I had a whole lot to learn. And I'd gotten all the things approved by the publisher and I was starting to paint. So I was doing a book with double page spreads, which means in a standard children's book, I was doing 17 paintings. Each painting would be two pages. Hmm. And I had started, the first one I did took me eight tries to get it right because I really didn't know what I was doing. But I took it to the publisher and she said, fine, go ahead. Lovely. So I did the second painting. It was beautiful. I did the third painting. It was lovely. I started on the fourth painting and along came the strokes and picked me up and put me down in rehab. And part of the story I tell, because I do a lot of storytelling, because I teach stroke recovery now, part of the story I tell is that I recovered enough to finish the book. Mm. It was published three years after the strokes. And if I don't tell you, you can't tell the difference between the first three paintings and the last 14, and they're not in order. <laughs> so... I was engaged in the creative process. And I have to say that one of the most important tools I brought into recovery was the ability to hang out in what I call the big I don't know. Mm. If you've ever done a painting or a piece of art, you pretty typically get partway through it and you think, where the heck is this going? <laughs> and I'm going 16 ways from sideways and this is never going to work. Mm. Keep on going and you keep on going and all of a sudden you're through and there are things there that you never imagined and it worked. Mm. So I had experience with that. So that was a really useful tool because of course I was terrified. Mm. But I had some idea that I could face it, keep working and something might happen. Mm. With the, um, we've talked previously about the uh, stories that we tell it ourselves. So the back to the before 
during and after stroke person. Um, and you had a delightful way to talk about what happens to our stories when an event happens. Can you talk about yeah, that a little bit? For sure. This is actually, this has been researched psychologically. Um, this is what happens. We all run on stories. We have stories in our hearts, in our minds. We have a story about who we're going to be and what we're going to do, how we fit into the world. We have little stories. What am I going to wear today? Am I going to wear a different pair of shoes? What kind of book am I going to read? How am I going to brush my teeth? We have lots of stories. Many, many, many. When a person has a catastrophic disabling injury, the stories break. They break. You cannot tell yourself the first story. I couldn't tell myself what I was going to wear. I couldn't put my clothes on. Obviously, I couldn't get to my closet. I couldn't brush my teeth. There was not a story I could tell myself. When the stories break, the stories will reform and the brain will default to the negative. It's what it does. So one of the important things to learn about stroke recovery is to look at those stories and recognize those negative stories are not necessarily true. That the story can be what we want to make it. And so stories are a very important part of this. And it's one of the reasons why I tell stories when I teach stroke recovery, because I want people to see, I want you to see that you have the power to craft a story of your own. And that story can be far more positive than you might imagine. And one of the things that happened in terms of my creative energy, of course, is that I had when I when I was recovering from the strokes, eventually. I wrote a book. Who knew I could write a book? <laughs> when you were, um, one of the other things that you talked about uh, with the recovery process was that as many of us, you go into the medical machinery that's there to help you, but they focus often on the mechanics of you weren't able to dress yourself. So how can we help you dress yourself? You weren't able to do some of the, the therapies around that. But in terms of the emotional support in what you can and cannot do, it's it's not like you broke your leg. And so here's the, you know, the six week, two month recovery plan. It goes on longer, but you came back once you were on your journey came back to help so that people understood that they that there was more to what you got when you got out of the hospital and rehab than what they were able to offer at the time. So you're trying to affect change in how stroke survivors recover once they're kind of even in rehab, but as they move away from that. Can you talk about that when you went back to Kaiser? For sure. And I, I dearly love Kaiser. They were very good to me. But we're dealing in a world in which there is limited time and limited financial resources. Wouldn't it be great if we could be in a rehab center as long as we needed? Mm -hmm. It's never going to happen. Mm -hmm. It's never going to happen. What we begin to understand and what I go to teach is that we actually are in charge of our own recoveries. And we have more effect on them than we can possibly imagine. We are used to a model 
of being passive and getting better. Think about when you got the flu. Mm -hmm. You went and you laid down for a couple of weeks. You drank tea or whatever it is that you like. (laughs) You read books, you watched TV, whatever it was. And your body healed. You fell down, you scraped your knee. You put on a Band-Aid and the skin filled in. Brains don't do this. And people don't understand the power of engagement. We are working with neuroplasticity. That's what we're doing. We are rewiring our brains. Brain tissue does not fill in like the skin on your knee. Brain tissue dies. And the brain has to find a way around that empty part like going around a roadblock. And that's what therapy is doing. It's trying to get the brain to figure out where to go. But the key to this is attention. What we pay attention to, we wire in our heads. It's called self-directed neuroplasticity. And most people haven't a clue that this exists. Mm -hmm. But this gives us, the stroke survivors, the power really the power to change functional outcomes. How we turn towards the injury, how we bring ourselves to the process, how we work with that emotional uproar, how we work with paying attention will change functional outcome. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying to anybody that there's a promise that everybody will get everything back. Each injury is different. But you might be amazed at the power of your own influence on the recovery process. We go into rehab, we feel passive. They're taking care of us, they're doing all these things, we're doing what they tell us, but we're missing the key ingredient and that's our engagement. And that's why I teach. And with the, when you started doing this stuff, as you said, under the radar at Kaiser, they weren't paying you, you were going in and just kind of sharing what your experience was and what you had learned. Um, And then that's evolved, I mean, crazy evolved in terms of the the myriad of things that you're doing, which I'll include, you know, in the posting, um, which it's just phenomenal. So the one of the one of the many things was a, a, a course that you had for stroke survivors to kind of help them build a plan. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about that a little bit? And how sure. you how you I mean, you were obviously a data point primary source, you know, resource number one, but you had been working with stroke survivors and all of that. So can you talk about how you, how the course came to be, what the course is and kind of what, how it came to be? So I've been teaching for 18 years and there are different ways that I teach, but the foundation of everything I teach is an understanding of what's called mindfulness, which is the power of trained attention. So I'm a mindfulness teacher now. I mean, I can teach meditation and mindfulness, but all of that's been adapted for stroke recovery. What I'm looking for is to help us find a way to manage ourselves effectively in the process. I created a course which is called Mindful Stroke Recovery. And that course is designed for both caregivers and survivors because we are a team. And I have seen over the years so many times in which someone, some pair of caregivers and survivors not being able to communicate, not being able to understand how to work together, Mm. trip each other up like crazy. And they mean well, they really want the best for each other, 
but mm -hmm. they don't need the tools. So a lot of people will teach survivors by themselves, and I still do a bunch of that. But my preference is for programs to include both. Caregivers knew different support. I was a caregiver with my late husband. Mm -hmm. I know what that's like. But caregivers and survivors also need to work together. So that's why I created the course that I created. And now I teach in various different ways, as you've said. Mm -hmm. Back to the uh, creative thread that I had. Um, can you talk about when you wrote the book, when the spark of I'm going to write a book happened and how in your process, I mean, you couldn't talk, you couldn't walk, you probably couldn't write very well with your clutched hand to begin with. So how did that evolve to where you ended up writing a book? Oh, that's an interesting story. So I, um, I had been working on the children's book. Mm -hmm. So I had somebody who was publishing the children's book. So I knew this person. I started teaching and I created an outline of what I was teaching when I would go in. And this was before mindful stroke recovery. I was going into rehab centers and giving an hour talk. And I created an outline of the various points that I wanted to cover. And I showed it to the publisher. And she said to me, if that's not the outline for a book, I don't know what is. And I'm like, no, 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 I'll never write a book. Are you crazy? Never, never, never. I'll never write a book. So then a friend of mine, asked me to write a foreword for a book of somebody else who was who was being published. So I said, okay. So I wrote the foreword and then the book was published. And I saw my words in print. Mm. And my brain went, you can do this. You can do this. I mean, like, competitive. And then, I mean, I had the outline, so I knew what I was mm. talking about. It's not like I was going to plan it, right? I mean, it was there. Right. Then the book took me by the collar and it grabbed me this book you you hear things about people saying about being written by their writing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. by the collar and that book was writing itself when i was taking a shower wow it was going on the whole time and i i was possessed by it and i sat down and i wrote it and people say to me why don't you write another book well, I've never been possessed again. <laughs> and you hope to never have another life event traumatic like that where you would right. want to be possessed by right. Yeah, don't, don't need that one. You've had enough. The book wanted to be, and there was something to say, mm -hmm. because when I was recovering 21 years ago, it's a long time ago, Yeah, people weren't talking about neuroplasticity. I was living it. Mm. I knew it was real. Norman Deutsch was just coming out some couple years after my stroke with his books about the way the brain changes and the brain that changes itself. Mm -hmm. This was early thinking. And yeah. what I was hearing from the medical professional was the old standard, six months and you don't get any more. And I was living a different reality. Mm -hmm. So I was standing up and saying, uh-uh, this is wrong. <laughs> Excuse me, I don't care what they say. I'm living a different reality. This is wrong. And it's one of the reasons why I was driven to teach. Because I saw people suffering. There is a thing called learned non-use. Mm. This has been extensively studied uh. by many people. And 
what it basically says is if you don't stimulate the brain to use the injured part, if you don't really make it do that, mm -hmm. the brain's an opportunist. It's going to go do something else. Mm -hmm. It's going to strengthen something else. So when you say to somebody, you've only got six months and they stop, guess what? Mm -hmm. Burden on you sets in and they're toast. And we certainly, I mean, all of us grew up with, if you, you take a foreign language in high school or college, and if you don't use it, you lose it. Or if you learn piano as a kid, if you don't get to a seven-year kind of training where it's really muscle memory, you're going to lose it. So it's the concept was kind of planted in us as at an early age that you have to use it or lose it. And so it makes total sense that was something even that I mean, it would apply, mm -hmm. but I don't think people put that. They took what the doctor said and it's like, I've got six months and that's it. Um, so can you um, talk about uh, in these, the, the advice that you would give to caregivers and to stroke survivors or the team of them, you know, the, the couple salient top, you know, one or two things that um, for people who are listening, who are new to having a traumatic event, to give them some sense of um, agency for hope in terms of what they can do? It's a very complicated question because of course, every stroke in every situation is different, every single one. So it's hard to give blanket advice. But the very first thing I would say is you have more power over this than you think. And the second thing I would say is that one of the most fundamental tools is kindness. Mm. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to each other. Really deep kindness. The brain is going to respond to any injury, no matter what it is, in a way that will impede recovery. Mm. If you stub your toe, it's going to get in the way of recovery. If somebody criticizes you, if you criticize yourself, if you beat yourself up, if you blame yourself, if you do all those things, the brain's going to interpret it as an injury. It's going to slow down your recovery. Mm. We're not used to being kind to ourselves, but it is absolutely essential. Think about it this way. If you had a tiny child in your life and this little person was learning to walk, and this little person stumbled and fell, you wouldn't say, oh, you stupid kid. Mm. But we say that to ourselves. And we say that to each other. And guess what? It doesn't help. Mm. So these are very fundamental. We need to engage. We need to turn towards what's happened and find a way to work with it. And we need to make a daily practice of being kind to ourselves and each other. That's really good advice. When I often ask people if there was one piece of advice they'd give to their pre-injured self, what would it be? I'd still have that question for you, but one of the, um, you had so many tools going into your stroke in terms of what your background was. And you said it was like uh, process-wise, you were prepared for being in that unknown space. So it didn't seem to, uh, scary isn't the right word. Um, oh, it's so scary. Like, okay. Okay. Um, but it's like, I've been, there's something familiar, there's something very familiar 
I'm grabbing or choosing to frame this as to use again. So uh, I wondered if if you could go back to your pre-injured self, is there a piece of advice that you would have you'd give yourself? It's a very interesting question. And I and I want to say about the big I don't know that we were talking about. What I knew is that you could live with uncertainty and find out something in the end. You didn't have to know what mm -hmm. the outcome was going to be for it to work out. That was a big tool. You didn't have to know. But what I would say if I were talking to that 55-year-old before she had the strokes, because I'm 76 now, I would say to her, your life is not going to be what you think it's going to be. Mm. You're going to get thrown big challenges. That's the way life is. But what you need to know is those challenges can be met. And if you meet them with an open heart, what you do has the power to transform you and bring you into possibilities you may never have imagined existed. Mm -hmm. So as difficult as it seems, as full of anger and fear and frustration as it is, what I would say to that 55-year-old self is you have the ability to work with this situation. You will make it work. Wouldn't that be nice to have had future selves with us? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just kind of going along with the journey. Oh, um, One, I wanted to ask you if there was anything else that you wanted to share with people. And the, the little phrase that keeps popping into my head is when you were starting to go and do these talks and basically telling the medical profession, you're wrong. You're wrong. I'm an example of how you're wrong, but that they came back to you after a period of time and said, with the information you were providing to people, the invitation that you were providing people, that you were changing outcomes. And so you got the uh, well-earned and deserved kind of, oh, maybe six months isn't kind of the, you know, generic. Can you talk about how that kind of played out? I, that is, um, that's a wonderful question. There are dogmatic professionals and non-dogmatic professionals. I didn't take on the dogmatic professionals. I went under their radar. What I was doing, and with, along with my beloved friend, Rita Martin, who is a fellow stroke survivor, she and I would teach together in California. We would teach people and then the therapists and the doctors who were on the floor, they would come to us and say, you know, the patients have changed because you talked to them. Mm -hmm. They're more engaged. What's happening is they're getting more recovery. They would tell us this. Mm -hmm. So we knew it. And I teach in another rehab center now. I'm still doing it mm -hmm. here in Richmond, Virginia, where I live. Mm -hmm. And I hear the same thing. That's got to feel really good. There is nothing better than being able to bring a benefit to the universe. Nothing. I, it, I was once asked the question, are you grateful you had your strokes? 
The answer to that is always no. I am not grateful I had two brainstem strokes, but I am grateful for what I've learned from it and what I've been able to do with it. And that's the thing. We have the opportunity, no matter what happens to us, to live our lives as fully as we possibly can and bring some kind of benefit to the world around us. That is wonderful. So what is your next, um, as you said, happy birthday uh, uh, year um, when we talked about um, balance, you know, understanding and appreciate kind of work balance and and you've got mindfulness background and whatnot. It's like, you're doing so many things. What are you doing to balance your life? Because it seems like you're on full tilt boogie with all these different projects. And so your project now is to help kick off these projects, but spread the word, so to speak, in terms of the good work you've been doing, but have it done in a way that it can live on and you don't have to be full tilt boogie with all of them. So can you talk a little bit about more about that? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> I do have to remember I'm 76. Oh. It, it is an important piece of information. And as I age, you know, I get arthritis and this interacts with the stroke residuals and, you know, it's a lot to manage. Okay. So what I see myself as is being in the legacy phase, which means it sounds like a big word, but it, you know, I don't mean it very ostentatiously, ostentatiously at all. What I mean by it is, Whatever it is I've had the privilege to learn, I'm trying to give to other people. You take this on. So train a teacher. Uh, I helped at the rehab center where I am now. I helped them create a peer mentoring program for stroke and helped them teach the peer mentors how to do that. So this is legacy. This is somebody else take on the work. Let me show you what I know. You're going to take it and improve it because you have new ideas and you have new strengths. So you're going to run with it in directions I could never take it here. This is what I know. Mm -hmm. Use it however it will bring a benefit. So that's the stage I'm in. Well, I think everybody's going to look forward to, I mean, the number of people that you've touched in the 21 years, it's hard to imagine 21 years ago. I mean, when I think about, when you talked about the self-directed neuroplasticity, it's like, oh, that's it. That's what I did. I just didn't know that that's what it was called. But to imagine, I mean, mine were, my strokes were in 2007, but yours were, you know, longer. And just in terms of what was available in terms of information and terminology and whatnot, you were, you know, so, I forget that it was that long ago because you sound so current with all the terminology and especially all the, um, neuroscience that's being more um, approachable, right? Say for for regular folks, you know, non scientific folks. Um, so, uh, well, thank you, Allison, so much for your time. Is there any other words of advice or wisdom that you'd like to pass on? Oh, a question I wasn't prepared for. <laughs> Let me think about it a minute. <laughs> what I would say, really, is do your best to meet the powerful emotions that come up with us because there are powerful emotions. I've never been so terrified and angry and frustrated and confused, all that's there. Recognize that those are part of the process. Find help if you need it to meet those emotions. Don't get stuck in them. Mm. 
keep turning towards opening your heart because you're going to find your way and you're going to make a life. Thank you, Allison. Thank you for asking me. Take care. Thanks for joining me this month. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, leave a comment, and subscribe. Until next month, take a moment and hug someone you love.